thanks for joining me for episode 10 of On the Rocks with Joe Warren. I'm your host, Joe Warren, the CEO of Warren Capital Group, an SEC-registered investment advisor. I also serve as the CEO of Live Oak Endeavors, a private equity holding company that can be found at holycitycapital.com. Over the years, we've acquired interest in some stellar private companies through hard work, fair dealings, and competent negotiation. Behind every good negotiation is a quality lawyer, and today I sit with one of my favorites, Tim Zwerner. Tim and his firm, Zwerner Law, have been my legal advisors for years and helped me navigate multiple closings. Once a new t- concept turns into a business, that business needs to get funded to grow. Tim has been behind the scenes of many a funding, and this is his story how he built his business by helping others build theirs. Enjoy. You're talk, you're behind the scenes of all these deals that get done in my from my perspective, making sure the structure's right, you're following the regulations, the guidelines, giving advice. Um, a lot of the people that listen are entrepreneurs, business owners, people that are starting a concept, the people that you service. And I just think your, your story and history and, and the aid is, you know, people just look as lawyers as like, oh, I need to get a lawyer for this, rather than I need a partner that helps, that knows law. And that's how I feel about your business. Well, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. First of all, you got a really cool setup here. People who ultimately listen to this, uh, Joe's got a pretty, pretty sweet digs. Um, <laughs> And we're not into the whiskey as much as I wish we were because it is only 11 o'clock. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to tell you what I think or answer any questions. Uh, usually, because uh, the way we work, people are trying to keep my uh, thoughts and words as limited as possible because I feel like they're paying per word. So, uh, yeah, it's just sort of the cross we bear selling our time. That's actually an interesting model. Instead of per hour, I'll, I'll give you, you know, it's a, a per word. A per, right. Maybe it could be a per letter charge. I'll, I'll get put on word ration. But, um, but, yeah, you get what you pay for and uh, with me. So, um, uh, then we're not on the clock right now. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to be here. And, uh, yeah. Well, first of all, Warner Law has been on a bit, of, a bit of a tear from what I've seen and uh, the experience I've had. You've got how many attorneys now? Oh, man. Um, seven? I got to count. We uh, we're uh, interviewing another associate right now. Um, yeah, we turned four uh, July seventeenth, um, which is really cool. Uh, you know, it's in the professional services space. Um, building a business is not too dissimilar from uh, what a lot of my clients experience. We have the same growing pains, the same challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our it's. It, when you talk about scaling, it's a little different when your product's not a widget, it's human capital. Yeah. Um, and our, you know, our widget is our time, I joke, but most of our engagements are, are hourly billing matters. So um, we have, there's a finite amount of that that we can sell. So uh, it's probably why if someone were to come in and buy us, they don't pay turns on, on our EBITDA. Um, Fair. But, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's cool. I've had a lot of fun uh, getting the flex some entrepreneurial muscle and build a business and, and grow it with um, really some, uh, the thing I'm most proud of is the team I've got around me. It's just absolutely exceptional. Best pair of I could ask for, some great colleagues with uh, who are a lot smarter than me and 
um, really, I think, are creative to, to value in our engagements. So you, and this is unique because I left the, the, the wirehouse business, the brokerage house business, mm -hmm. because of Morgan Stanley and up to 2005 and started Warren Capital, and that was a, a new model back then where you had an independent RA like we are now. It's sort of more common these days. But you don't see a lot of attorneys leave a, a big shop and then go to open a firm and build lawyers. I mean, that's kind of your background, if I understand it correctly. And that's that's kind of rare. Is that not true? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of lawyers are on the spectrum of risk takers are probably closer to uh, you know, accountants and tax professionals. Uh, there, there are not a lot of risk uh, in us, naturally. Um, we like... To the extent that we're drawn to it at all, um, we can do it from the safety of sort of our offices as we counsel our clients as they take the risk. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the person who takes the risk oftentimes is the one who gets the reward, too. Um, so that's why you don't see uh, a lot of lawyers buying boats or airplanes or um, getting to enjoy some of the spoils that our clients get to participate in. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, my background worked at a couple of uh, large firms. Uh, one in Charleston, I worked a lot with the team out of Atlanta too. Um, and before that, I was in Tampa, Florida. Worked with a couple of great firms, learned a ton, and had a stint uh, in-house with a um, uh, called a clean tech company. They were mm -hmm. doing uh, residential solar installations, also doing some real estate stuff, and working on a clean tech software application that they've gone on to have a lot of success with. Um, and that really helped ground out my um, my experience, I think, so that you know I could more closely identify with um, the challenges my clients were having in practice, not just academically, because I'd sort of I'd felt it and I'd seen it firsthand when I was in-house with a private company. Yeah. Um, and that's part of our value proposition as a firm and what makes us a little unique is that um, four, three or four of the other lawyers on my team also have uh, some degree of uh, in-house experience. And when you can really have walked in your client's shoes, it, it helps you give them you know, not just that um, esoteric advice, but practical business guidance too, which I think they appreciate. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, it's... Uh... I saw on your site, and I think your moniker is uh, helping trailblazers and trendsetters, hmm. which is uh, not something you normally see on the homepage of a law firm. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, look, uh, um, our website probably needs to be revisited. I did that thing on a shoestring budget. No, I loved budget, it. I thought but, it was great. I thought it was very, very frank. You know, I liked it. So I got to tell you, we've got some really cool clients, and um, I think that moniker is pretty accurate. It's, it's not because of anything I've done. We've just been very fortunate that uh, we've got some really cool clients doing really neat, a lot of times cutting edge stuff. Um, whether they're pioneering uh, uh, in the pioneers in the ag tech space, or they're on the the next frontier of real estate development or urban infill. I mean, yeah. it's just a, I I really. I'm fortunate that I, I, I like all my clients and, and they're just doing cool, neat things. So. Well, talk to me about, um, I mean, I, was, I looked up today preparing for this that there were 1.2 million lawyers in 2010, according to ABA, versus 1.352 now, a uh, million lawyers. So it's up 10% over the last decade. Mm -hmm. um, 
in my experience with lawyers, kind of like financial advisors, like we are, you know, there's not unless you're doing huge volume, you're not, you don't have a big marketing advertising, you know, like rent, you know, a budget to find random clients. It's referrals that you get from everyone. I would assume that's where all our business comes from. But how is the industry going to? I mean, you got ten percent more lawyers. That's a million more. I mean, that's a lot of new lawyers in the last ten years. So, um, excuse me, it's a hundred thousand more lawyers in the last ten years. Is that how do you? How do you separate yourself? I mean, you talk about the website, et cetera, but I'm aware of this law firm that the legal field going to be in 10 years. You know, is it going to be 15 times bigger, 20? You know, that's a, that's a really interesting, uh, that's a really interesting question. I, you're, you're right. First and foremost, you're right that we don't advertise at all. Uh, I mean, my, my advertising budget, it consists of like taking my clients out for coffee or dinner yeah. or drinks. Um, you're never going to see us on a billboard or a park bench, but that's that's a function of kind of you know where what aspect of the legal field we find ourselves in. You know, there are lawyers who have enormous marketing budgets. If guys are um, representing victims of you know, crime or car wrecks or things like that, they've sure. got huge marketing spends. Um, I think that the biggest uh, challenge we face is um, is technology uh, there's um, there's a lot of really smart people out there some of them are our clients who are who are developing products and services that um, might ultimately compete with or um, demystify what it is that we do and uh, I think to date, that's that trend's been been great. There's been this democratization of knowledge with the internet that right. has enabled me, as a you know, a, a relatively boutique firm in Charleston, South Carolina, to um, I think uh, hold our own and competitively negotiate with much larger brand name firms in much bigger markets. Um, because when it comes to understanding issues that will present in an engagement, um, there's, the internet provides just uh, 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 extraordinary resources for you to go get smart on things. Right. Um, and you, you couple that with your experience, and it's a killer package. Um, you know, that, that wasn't available. 15 years ago, 20 years ago. So these bigger firms in bigger markets that had invested on forms and processes and procedures internally had an extraordinarily uh, large or a competitive advantage over smaller firms Mm -hmm. that I think is... um, I think is is starting to erode. I think it has eroded meaningfully. Do you think... I mean, to me, there's a... I look at it as... Um, when you talk about the legal zooms and various other online platforms to get your standard documents, I mean that's got to be a pretty big impediment or challenge to other firms. I'm, that's probably not where you guys compete so much. But do you think there's going to be two million lawyers in ten years, or is it is it kind of is it at its maximum capacity now? You know, I don't know. I mean, it. it um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'd be curious to see what like. Uh, I feel like people find themselves going to graduate school because they don't have anything else to do, and they say, "Well, you know, a law degree isn't going to hurt me." And that's true. Sure, it's uh, three years of just learning how to uh, 
just look at the world differently. I come from a family of lawyers, so it was always what I was going to grow into. I don't know that there were other careers out there besides right. doctors and dentists, and I was terrible at science. Pretty bad at math, too. Shoot, I, I didn't even take a <laughs> math class after high school. So I knew I was going into practice. We were trying to promote ourselves here, too. Right? <laughs> but but um, at least I'm, I'm nothing if not honest. But um, it, So I, I always knew it was what I wanted to do. But I, I went to school with a ton of really bright people who enrolled in law school at the beginning of the Great Recession because there are no jobs. Yeah. So they went to law school, then they went on to work in HR, or one guy's a, uh, a contractor, builds big commercial buildings in Central Florida. You know, I mean, that law degree doesn't hurt them. It yeah. doesn't necessarily help them any, but it certainly doesn't hurt them, um, other than maybe in the pocketbook if they borrowed money for it. But yeah, I think that, I think that with education, um, moving online, it's gonna, there's gonna be less barriers to, entry in the legal field um, so I think that there's a potential for more lawyers but I, again with with those you, you talk about legal zoom and again the practice of law like anything else you get what you pay for sure um, and legal zoom might be totally appropriate for somebody on a budget who's uh, um, gonna operate a, a popsicle stand like a lifestyle business um, and it's just uh, they're gonna be the sole owner and you know they get their LLC form and off they go they've right. got that but unless somebody's really explaining to them, I've never used LegalZoom, so maybe they do a great job of this. I, I just don't know. But um, unless someone explains that entrepreneur, you know, walks them through whether they want to make an S election and put themselves on salary, uh, or if they anticipate uh, raising capital in the future and the S election is not going to work for them mm -hmm. because they're going to have, um, you know, their corporation is going to have separate classes of stock. Unless somebody's holding their hand and helping them make those decisions. Um, I think it's a disservice to just give somebody a one-size-fits-all, you know, self-directed approach to legal um, engagement. That's just not how we operate. We're, we see ourselves as business partners. So, so I'd say a couple of things. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think that the, the, the progress we've made to date with the products and services that are available to us as lawyers to use has made... Uh, those of us who are willing to spend the money to subscribe to the resources and do the work to get up to speed, it's made us um, capable of rendering better, more sophisticated legal advice than I think we would have been able to do a decade ago. Well, that's fair. Um, yeah. But I think that if the pendulum swings too far, and you know, and I see it all the time with these like Y Combinator forums or the NVCA forums. Yeah. You know, these entrepreneurs who are trying to save a buck or just go grab stuff down off the internet. Next thing you know, they're circulating their own convertible notes. And people are <laughs> signing them, and there's just it just doesn't make any sense. They got the wrong structure. They got no idea what appropriate discount should be. You know, yeah. so that it. it um, <laughs> it, it can certainly be a double-edged sword, but in terms of like the, the headcount and the legal space, yeah, I, I see that number is going to continue to climb for sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it just gets to be more complex. Uh, one of the things I admire about y'all's work, and, and we've engaged you guys many times uh, for a variety of issues, uh, is is your competency relative to the uh, the hourly. Honestly, I mean, I came out of D.C. and you work in some of these larger markets. I still work with some council in the Northeast and. You know, they're probably eight hundred to a thousand an hour versus maybe down here in Charleston it's 
350 to 500. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder in this day and age, because I see a lot of my legal friends and professionals moving south that have been in the business for a long time. They're like, you know, I'm leaving these communities. Obviously, the pandemic has something to do with that, but also they're moving their practice south. And I'm like, do you think you're going to fetch $800 or $900 an hour in, you know, Buford or Charleston or, you know, a small town in Florida? Is And I always say, is, is, the is somebody at $800 an hour doing better work for me than somebody at $500 an hour? And so... I mean, how do you set up your hourly rate compared to, I guess, people that are doing the same service? Is it regional? Is it, yeah, and that's, a, I've never understood that formula. Uh, you know, I think I read a book uh, about how to, it's called How to Start and Build a Law Practice. A shameless okay. plug for <laughs> that's that. That's probably helpful. It was, uh, I read it in law school. Best class I ever took, law practice management. And um, if memory serves me, there was something like the author wrote, Something about our rates ought to be uh, uh, tied to like the price of a Big Mac, you know. Like, and he kind of explained relative to where we ought to be relative to a Big Mac. Like, Big Mac three fifty lawyer ought to charge three fifty an hour. Big Mac five bucks, he ought to charge five hundred bucks an hour. Just a Big Mac these days. I haven't even tried. You know, I probably ought to look. With the two kids, I'm talking I'm, myself into a higher fee right now. I'm trying to. I'm trying to no, you get you get a discount. You get a good discount. But um. Um, you know, with the two kids, I'm trying to avoid the Big Macs now. Do everything but, I can. But is there a standard in the industry? Do you look at other lawyers and say, hey, that guy's doing the same sorts of VC we, work over there. I should charge the same. You or, know, we want to be competitively priced. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, um, we're never going to, at least with my firm, every lawyer's got a different angle, how they attack this with clients. But I'll tell you, we're not, we're not cheap. <laughs> we're not, you know, that. we're not cheap. We're never going to market ourselves as like, that's never going to be our value proposition that we lead with with trying to woo a new client. Is, sure. Well, gosh, we're we're more cost effective. It's a component of of our pitch, I'd say, but it's um it's not what we lead with. It is true that we're we are um, oftentimes uh, more accessible than some of the larger firms, although not not you know not by fifty percent um, locally. You know, we want to. We love to see the bigger firms in town, particularly the ones that we, I would say, we compete with, who have a national or a regional presence. We love to see them moving rates north because it means then that we can. Um, so you, you know, you kind of it's it's no different than an entrepreneur pricing a product in the market. You know, you you kind of you push push push, and then someone says, well, well, gosh, that's expensive, and then you kind of takes it back. You're like, well, okay, let's revisit that. Um, so. So you want to see what the market will bear. Um, you also, uh, you know, obviously, we've got our ethics obligations. And we, our fees have to be always be reasonable. You know, even if the market would bear. Is that the, is that the what is the is that the ethical term of it? Is that what the there's a, there's a, a test. Um, it's it's pretty. Then nobody wants to hear about it. But yeah, the long and short of it is, it's got to be a reasonable in light of the you know the complexity involved and what how much time it takes. You know what. Your, your your cost bit um, what takes you away from you could otherwise be doing um, and there's definitely been a trend amongst practitioners uh, recently to move towards um, alternative fee arrangements so you've got guys billing um, they'll do fixed fees or flat fees for engagement you see that a lot with like commercial leasing if somebody's done a ton of retail leasing they've got a general idea 
of how much time it's going to take to get a lease done yeah. within a, a floor and a ceiling. So they'll flat fee that. And if you got a client who, um, I had a client in the uh, QSR space, um, um, quick service restaurant, rolling out a lot of the same concept. And yeah. Say, all right, they're going to do 20 leases this year. And I know each one's going to take this much time, more or less. So if I, if I give them a flat fee of X per project, um, I might end up having to write off some time on a couple. A few other transactions might be um, more uh, efficient because a landlord's got less leverage or something. And um, at the end of the day, it's going to be fair. I'll get paid a reasonable fee. And the client's happy because they can budget they can hard code their legal expense on a per project basis into their pro forma and then it, it not be some variable that moves and yeah. uh, do, you know, results in return integration. So they're happy. Um, so you see a lot of people, particularly smaller entrepreneurial firms, um, embracing these like alternative fee arrangements, uh, whether that's fixed monthly billing um, or flat fees. Um, you see some people move towards success fees. We've we've sort of we've stayed away from that to date, um, uh, for a couple of reasons. I just um, you know as much as we see ourselves as business partners, like we don't really have skin in the game. Yeah. So I don't know that success <laughs> fees are are necessarily appropriate. I can see a I can see a client kind of getting fussed with that. Although we, we do we do uh, oftentimes have busted deals fees where we just kind of do it and work out. We'll we'll write off some of our time just because we, we feel the client's pain. Um, you're a deal lawyer. I mean, in my mind, I mean, I, I've been on on both sides of the table with you. I guess on a few deals we've done here in Charleston, et cetera, and stuff mm -hmm. for ourselves. What's the deal? What's the landscape now versus? You know, I I see prices becoming more reasonable than they were maybe two or three years on some assets. Um, I see a little more reality in deals than I did, you know, maybe before the pandemic. Um, although stimulus money over the last year certainly changed a lot of that. Where do you feel like, you know, or do you think that we're in a declining valuation market or is it stable or what are you seeing out there? You know, um, so I'm going to put it into two different buckets because uh, my firm, as you know, we have two sides of our house. Uh, we've got our corporate side and we've got our commercial real estate side. And that's just a function of what my background was in. Yeah. Um, so on the corporate side of the house, we the space we primarily play in is um, early stage emerging growth companies. Yeah. So we're talking... Private companies; these aren't ideas on napkins working out of people's garages. These these companies have revenue. Um, sometimes they're profitable, but not always. But they've got a high growth trajectory, and usually they have um, either uh, accepted funding from ultra high net worth, sophisticated angel types, or you know, small venture funds. So yep. that's kind of <laughs> the, the stage we're at, and. <clears throat> Anecdotally, just again, my personal experience, what I'm seeing, um, I expected when the pandemic first started in early 2020, I was like, all right, we're going to be doing follow-on financings all year, you know, bridge loans. <laughs> and that didn't materialize. Uh, and I, don't, I haven't yet really 
figured out why. Um, but we didn't work on, you know, in 2019, we probably closed 25 uh, financings, which is which is a lot for a firm of our size. Sure. We, that, yeah. was a, that was a lot of deal flow. Um, probably it was closer to 20 in 2018. So 2019 was really active in terms of new finances. 2020, we probably only worked on 10 or 12 um, financings where our clients led the round. Um, there weren't near, I don't recall more than a couple of, of follow-on or bridge-type financings where a company was really adversely uh, and unexpectedly impacted by the pandemic and needed to shore up their cash position. So that didn't materialize like I anticipated it would. And then oddly, what, what, I, what we did do a lot of in 2020 was sell-side M&A work as part of like consolidations. So in the, in the dental space, in the uh, veterinary space, all these um, uh, professional services, uh, I, you know, optometrists, they were getting acquired and um, rolled up as part of these larger private equity backed yeah. <clears throat> conglomerates who you know are probably planning IPOs in the future. Um, so, I, you know, those guys went on a, just a buying spree in 2020. So they I think were, that was a relationship to some le- some loans they got probably, probably some financing from federal financing. Yeah, I don't know what their like capital stack looked like, but I just know that these guys were paying fair more than fair prices in at a time when some people you know were shut for yeah. extended periods of time and they were just going on a buying spree um fast forward to 2021 uh again from where i said my clients are getting active again in the venture side um so we're talking a lot of series a rounds and i'm seeing in valuation you know um, pre-money valuations are higher now than I've seen personally in the past two years, like significantly higher. I'm surprised at what our our Series A pre-monies look like these days. You know, it used to be four, five, six million dollar valuations, and now we're seeing eight, ten, twelve million dollar valuations. Um, for a company that you know our our practice is largely in the southeast, so Florida, Georgia, yeah. South Carolina, a lot out of North Carolina. Um, enterprise software companies or biotechs that are coming out of the gates for a Series A with a ten or twelve million dollar pre money and taking on three, four, five million dollars of new money like that's pretty good. That's pretty meaningful. Yeah. Um, from where we were two years ago, you know, we used to have to caution out of town investors that like, hey, look, this is and entrepreneurs actually uh, specifically like. This is Charleston. This isn't Silicon Valley or Austin. Right. So, like, don't expect your Series Seed to have a fifty million dollar pre money. Like, you didn't necessarily roll out of <laughs> roll out of Stanford or have a background at Uber. Um, yeah. So there was some expectation management with a lot of our uh, first time entrepreneur clients locally. They were just what maybe, do you find from your when you find somebody with a good concept that's maybe had a little angel funding that's ready for their first series. You know, is the challenge with those clients trying to understand, like what you just said, trying to understand a real valuation of what they've got? Are they are they sort of so far out of the box that you need to draw them in a bit, or they do they come in somewhat reasonable? 
it depends on the team around them. You know, if they're first time entrepreneurs, um, uh, there, there can be, um, and they're looking around for comps to see what their idea is worth and they find themselves um, comparing themselves to their peers in Boston or, or um, even Atlanta, but, but largely, you know, to, to, to Boston or the West Coast, there might be a propensity to, um, to inflate what they're, you know, to, to think that their, their initial round is going to be priced higher than it probably ultimately will be. And, um, Unfortunately, I've had to be the you know the messenger a couple of times, <laughs> and it it doesn't make for a good first engagement. And we've lost clients who've ultimately circled back to us a year later because they they never got their deal closed because it's crazy. Yeah, regionally, that's just not what people are going to pay. Um, uh, so yeah, that's a challenge. You know, if they've got there's our community's really fortunate to have a handful of really active, incredibly sophisticated, and, and very highly regarded, um, I'll, I'll call them super angels, I mean folks who write yeah. really big checks, and and are, are hands-on but not in the way at all, and um, they're, they're tremendous resources for our entrepreneurs, and if they listen to their advice, they their expectations will be properly managed and they won't get steered in the wrong direction. Um, so it's not, I'm not saying that every entrepreneur in Charleston misvalues their company. That's not the case at all. There's, there, we've got a ton of great companies. Yeah. It's just, uh, there's a propensity for a first time entrepreneur to get dollar signs when they see what folks are doing in Silicon Valley. And I'm just saying that doesn't always translate dollar for dollar to our, to our market. Uh, the, when, so when you engage a client, I guess initially for fundraising, which is a lot of practice, as you mentioned, how quickly do you see them again? Are they back in three to five years for the Series B or C? I mean, what's a, let's say a successful company, not just a, not just a rocket ship, but just a reasonably good, successful, growing 15, 20, 30% rev. Um, do they come back maybe one or two times for more rounds? Well, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully we see them a lot. Uh, <laughs> sure. Uh, hopefully... Um, They'll, they'll lean on us for assistance with uh, uh, privacy policies, terms of use, if they're a web-based application or you know, an app, or if, um, if there's a software company they'll, for their master services agreement or for, their, for a license agreement. You know, they'll, they'll, they've got, they're gonna go through a, a growth period where they're bringing on new employees, you know, rank and file, and maybe, yeah. maybe executives. And we'll negotiate um, covenants agreements for them, and offer letters, and potentially employment agreements for folks who are you know, at that higher tier um, executive. Um, so it's not uh, like a one night stand, if you will, where we do their financing and then we never hear from them again. Sure, of course. We want to be in the trenches with them, helping them grow that business, and, and giving them practice pointers, and, and helping them negotiate those commercial contracts. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I would say um, I don't know that I've seen a company in my career, uh, despite the pro formas I've seen, that would, would tell you they think it will be otherwise, uh, except one round of financing and then never need money again right. and then grow to the moon. It just, um, 
Yeah, our litmus test here is when we see a deal, when we see a lot of them, we, you know, we, we cut their, their, their numbers in half and see if they'll be in a business in the next year, you know, and that's kind of the, that's, the, the, that gets us to even look at the deal, but uh, yeah, performers are a tough one to swallow. Well, yeah, and even if you can, if you can like achieve profitability after one round of financing, a lot of your investors will tell you, you're just not growing fast enough then. You know, you need to take those retained earnings and plow them into sales market and just boom. It is a balance. We see it on a lot of deals, like when, how much cash flow do you put into R&D growth sales, et cetera, versus, you know, leaving some to, to pay the bills. And uh, we've seen a lot of companies come back from Series F and I and J. I mean, just way out there 10 years later. And that's, uh, and then you can't say that they also build huge businesses too. So you can't necessarily argue against them, but, um, you know, I, I get that I get that inquiry a lot from our companies that we're buying or acquiring. Like, how much of this free cash flow do we need to put towards growth versus leaving for a dividend or paying out to the investors? And that that is a formula that I don't think there's a perfect answer for. Well, I'll tell you, um, my clients who make investments in early stage companies are not doing it for dividends. Sure, they want you to they want the entrepreneur to take that thing. As far as he or she can, and and then to sell. Um, so they've got a three to seven, you know, typically called a five-year time horizon, where there's really no expectation that there's any distri- interim distributions, right. and all money, any profits are are redeployed towards growth. And then there's a, a, an ultimate liquidity event where everyone makes a ton of money. That's that's their objective. Um, Obviously, uh, you how often to, does that really happen? I mean, yeah, that's the trouble I try to warn people about. Is like, let's assume there is not a monster sale at 10x sales right. in five years. What do you got left over, and how are you going to get paid? And you want to have responsible growth too. Yeah. Um, because uh, um, we talk, even in my business, you know, we talk about uh, good problems to have, and growth is a good problem to have, but it, it can stress your internal infrastructure too. Yeah. Um, you don't realize uh, a lot of times you see growth on the sales team. And then you got to onboard a bunch of new teammates, a bunch of new employees. And um, entrepreneur will fail if they've internalized HR, for instance. They'll fail to realize that you got one person in your HR department who's responsible for 20 employees. Right. You'll bring on. <laughs> 10 new teammates on the sales side, you just crush your HR person. And that's a, that's a GNA, you know, that's a cost center. So you're not necessarily looking to plow a bunch of resources <laughs> into your HR department. So anything you can, you know, you can, um, you can uh, outsource is always great so that you've got companies that can scale with you. But, uh, but yeah, it's, um, point is growth is, is, is great, but um, with it comes its own set of unique challenges. Uh, some of which are internal on your existing processes and procedures and your infrastructure that I think um, the real cost of growth uh, and, and what you need to kind of, the hurdles you need to overcome in order to grow top line revenue um, is not always as simple as just selling more widgets. Yeah. I mean, we always have, you know, we, we talked about, you know, cutting numbers on a performer, but from a standpoint of our deal flow, which has been 10 deals in 12 years, I mean, pretty, pretty specific. Uh, we we have to see huge margins. I mean, it's just we want to we want the business to survive. 
without having more and more rounds of financing. And that's hard to explain to a, a younger or newer company maybe has a great idea that like, hey, listen, I, I think it makes a ton of sense. We want to, but we don't necessarily, we won't know where you're going to be in two years and or the world will be in financing. We could be in a pandemic. We could be wherever. And I have a tough time explaining that to the investees we put money into. So. Yeah, I would, I guess, um, so just from, you know, Zorner Law's perspective, right? We've been open, I told you, four years in July. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Let's say we've 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 been on one side or the other of between seventy five and one hundred financings in that period of time. Yeah. Um, some of those probably follow ons. Uh, had one really good client, um, uh, HRIS Vertical, um, who was uh, acquired through a, a merger. Um, worked with a handful of other companies that are starting to engage in that, you know, what does our exit look like? Talking to strategics and and doing things like that. But um, it's not the majority that buyers to mention. It's in four years time, um, I can count on one hand how many clients have gone through the life cycle of took some form of outside financing and then had a quote-unquote successful exit either through a a sale or otherwise um we've been fortunate that we haven't we haven't lost a lot of clients either uh you know a couple um couple i can think of uh and actually these weren't our clients Uh, these were these were these were folks that i think we were um I, i guess you'd say adverse to are um aren't going concerns anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that the pandemic for some did exacerbate either bad ideas or poorly run businesses. Um, yeah. And it enhanced some that were more agile and flexible. That's right. I mean, you know, and you're seeing the flip side of that now in the markets as well. You're seeing companies that those, those, those all got bit up last year tremendously. Now they're flattened out and, you know, the old stodgy companies that you know nobody really thinks about it now have started to rebound and you're seeing that then that's coming into valuations on a lot of the tech companies too. I, I think where we are too in terms of us you know every all these funds these venture funds these private equity funds talk about their their vintages like what year they raise capital and then they've got a you know they've got a seven year window they, right they've got a cultivation or deployment period and then a and then a harvest period and um i think that we're and everyone's got a different different vintage, but I think that uh, a lot of the folks deployed a lot of capital in eighteen and nineteen. Yeah. And um, I think we're in growth mode right now, so I think that we're still um, a, a year or two away from seeing a lot of activity on the M and A side. You're interesting in, in the aspect that you're an entrepreneur that's also a lawyer. Because mm-hmm. you're building your own practice, what what's the you know what's the objective for Zorner Law? I mean, are you guys going to just take out as many lawyers as you can? Is this going to be a monster practice? Are you going to be working off a sailboat and just ordering your people around? Like, where are you headed? Yeah, you know, great question. Uh, if anybody out there wants to come uh, come pay us uh, five times, even uh, <laughs> give me an email. Um, there's not on that note. Not, not to be not to be uh, trite about it, but I mean, there's not a lot of M and A in the legal world, is there? There's, I mean, law firms will will merge 
that happens with uh, some degree of regularity in order to enhance their geographic footprint or to to add a complementary um, practice group or things yeah. of that nature. But no, you don't see lawyers who build a law practice and then sell it to another lawyer for multiple times EBITDA and then right off into the sunset. That's just uh, not how not how we, we work, unfortunately. Um, you know, it's a great question. I think uh, um, our objective uh, and where we're headed is, um, you know, there's no there's no ideal uh, headcount that I have in mind. I'm sure. not saying I want to get to 25 lawyers. I just like surrounding myself with good people who are who are great lawyers and um, kind of folks you'd want to have a beer with. Yeah, who provide best in class legal service and just happen to live in the you know South Carolina low country. Um, so uh, we're certainly um, uh, entrepreneurial and uh, um, would would add the right person tomorrow if if they had a complimentary skill set or a, a portable book of business. Um, but beyond that, you know, we're we're big on intelligent growth, and we don't want to you know bite off more than we can chew. And and um, as the I, I certainly don't want to. Um, uh, increase my um, operating expenses for no, for no reason. Well, of course, you've done all this with. I actually had a new addition to the house. You got a little new child. Correct? I, I've got yeah. My daughter uh, will be three months old on the twentieth. That's number two. That's number two, Maddie. Yep, Maddie and your, Pearl. And your oldest is Jackson. Um, turned two in February. So you built this practice over the last few years, but and you grew a family as well. I, yeah. And, he closed a lot of deals. Closed a lot of deals. He hired some new lawyers. Uh, that's a lot for four years. It's yeah. This Warner household's been busy, much to my wife's uh, chagrin. Um, who is it? My wife Marissa is a lawyer too. Um, although she's uh, she's um, on sabbatical right now, uh, helping uh, with. I think she's got her hands full. That's right. She's got the, uh, <laughs> she may think well, you're on sabbatical. Well, day. you're not kidding. <laughs> I got to tell you, her job. I mean, sometimes I think I've got responsibility or tough job and um she's an absolute saint i mean what she that's the hardest job there is 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 being at home with, with small children uh hands down and she does a fantastic job um job doing it i, I wouldn't be equipped to handle it but um yeah she's been a great she's been supportive and a great partner and behind the scenes and listening to all my uh you know harebrained ideas and, <laughs> and kind of <laughs> Well, you must see a lot of like interesting stuff doing a hundred deals. You got to see a lot of weird ideas. I mean, I, I, I do. How many I, times have you brought your checkbook out for any deal flow? Yeah, um, we've uh, we've um, so Morgan, one of my colleagues, we've got a little a little our own little side hustle. We mm -hmm. call it um, Counselor Capital, and I like uh, that. <laughs> we uh, we've. Um, Probably taken very small positions and you know, fifteen or so uh, opportunities that present themselves to us. Um, super, super small positions. We we like to say like it, we like incentive alignment where the opportunity presents itself. Um, we don't want to vote. We don't want to be asked. You know, we we don't add value by being. I mean, maybe, maybe we probably do, but we. We take the position that like we want to be super hands off if we're in a cap table. Yeah. Like, we just um, we just want to be along for the ride and enjoy and, and share in some some success. We uh, <laughs> I think that um, I think that we're uh, 
we're great partners in the cap table because we have no expectations. We won't vote. You don't, you're not going to hear from us. Uh, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. Well, for I mean, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs and younger, you know, new business owners will hear this podcast. I mean, for your advice, you you open a business and you've been on. The, you are the legal advice behind a lot of opening business. What kind of um, input would you give somebody that's thinking about launching an idea or has an idea that maybe is in the early stages and needs some uh, institutionalization, if you will? Um, hmm, that's a good question. Because you did it yourself as a business. I mean, you took a pretty big leap years ago just to start your own practice. That's that's a takes a lot of confidence. It does, and um, you know, there's a lot of platitudes out there. If I'd have known you were answering that question, I probably would have like had some cans ready to go. We don't prepare but, these. We don't yeah, in advance zero, here. zero. <laughs> I actually asked for some. And I got none. Um, but uh, you know. It, a lot of a lot of those platitudes are right. Like, I was talking to your uh, your friend this morning, who's who's um, getting ready to graduate law school, and I and the truth is, gosh, for for entrepreneurs, for lawyers, for hopefully everyone other than medical professionals, uh, we learn as much, if not more, from our mistakes. Um, so you know, for somebody who's got an idea and is thinking thinking about doing it, um, I just say you know, go all in. You know, you can't, you're not going to get anywhere by having one foot in the pond. You know, you got to be all in and committed and, um, and it's success isn't going to come overnight. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work and, um, there's going to be a tremendous amount of adversity and there's going to be days where, you know, you question what in the hell you got yourself into and, you know, (laughs) It could be so much easier if you just had done this, that, or the other. But um, the people who succeed persevere in the face of that adversity, and they stay committed, and they they keep putting one foot in front of the other, and uh, you know keep working hard. And um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, those are the risk takers that are rewarded, at least in my experience. And and if you fail too, uh, you know. Um, I've got, like I said, I've got the two-year-old, so we're, we're doing, we do story time every night. There's this great uh, uh, Dr. Seuss book that we're reading, The Places You'll Go. Of course. And, uh, you know, Dr. Seuss says something like, you know, you'll do great. Sometimes you won't. And that's okay, too. Um, and it's I think that's a great lesson for, for any entrepreneur because uh, – even if you fail, like that's not an indictment of your character or even your idea. You know, it's just a learning opportunity. And just you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and off you go again. Well, you've done it yourself, and I know from being uh, you representing us, um, and also being across the table from you on a few few uh, transactions as well. You you can handle it all, and um, you, you should be proud of what you've built. We certainly enjoy working with you. you send a lot of business your way, and, and I know everybody that listens to this uh, this edition will uh, value the fact of. Having a good legal advisor that also is a businessman, that's a rarity. So uh, I congratulate you. I appreciate that. And that's the advice I do want to give. Uh, that's the other advice I'd give. You know, get good professionals. It's uh, it's worth what you pay for. But uh, I'll let you uh, make that plug. But yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, that. you already did it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tim, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me.